Welcome everyone to Creating a Family. This is Dawn Davenport. I am the Executive Director at Creating a Family. I'm also the host of this show. You know, we talk a lot on Creating a Family about the word attachment. In fact, I guarantee we probably say the word attachment in almost every show we do. And that's because attachment itself is one of the fundamental building blocks of of mental health, uh, both in childhood and, and actually throughout our entire lives. It is really important. But what do we mean by attachment? And, and how do we as parents help our kids get attachment? So we thought what we would do today is have kind of an attachment 101 type of show. We're going to be talking with Dr. Casey Call. She is the Assistant Director of Education at the Institute or at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at Texas Christian University. She is a researcher and a trainer for Trust-Based Relational Intervention, otherwise known as TBRI. This is a show, a re-airing of a show we did last year, but it is so important and we enjoy talking with Dr. Call so much that we thought we would bring it to you again. Enjoy. Thank you so much for having me, Dawn. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk. This is, uh, we're assuming that people, uh, even though we know most people have some idea about attachment, we want to start really at the beginning. So what is attachment? And quite frankly, why are we hearing so much about it? Why is it important to a child's development? Um, attachment is really just the, the relationship that we have with our primary caregiver or caregivers um, that begins um, from, I mean, really, it can begin prenatally or from the first moment that we meet. Um, I think the reason that it's so important um, there's two things that really stick out to me. One is that your early relationships kind of provide the roadmap for your future relationships. And so um, attachment becomes important because it, it sets the stage or kind of builds the, the scaffolding for um, all of your future relationships. So peer relationships, marriage relationships, work relationships. And it also um, helps our bodies and our brains learn how to regulate. Yeah, so really vital for every aspect of our life. Yes. How does attachment develop in kids who are raised from infancy in a healthy, functioning family? I guess what I'm really asking is, what does healthy attachment look like, and how does it develop? Yeah, so I always joke with my students that they've been in a lot of developmental classes, and they've, you know, memorized Erickson's psychosocial stages of development, and they always learn that from ages zero to one, it's the time of trust versus mistrust. Um, And so we really dive into that and how does a child learn how to trust? And we look at it, we have, we have a, um, at the Institute, we have what we've called, we've um, labeled the attachment cycle. And basically what it says is that, um, you know, a, a baby will cry because they have a need. They might be hungry or tired or sick or bored or cold. And then, you know, their body is in distress during that time. And then when a caregiver comes to meet that need, then they receive comfort. So then they, you know, their body is calm and they have their need met. So they're getting these little needs met over and over and over again, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of times, as anyone with a, with a new baby can tell you, right? <laughs> um, they have needs constantly. And so they're getting these needs met. And what happens is they, they begin to develop trust because they, when they cry, you come. And so that 
that's how the trust versus mistrust really kind of plays its, itself out. And that's how attachment develops. It's, uh, Dr. Purvis used to always say it's the saying yes. And we're saying, yes, I'm going to meet your needs. And yes, I'm going to take care of you. And yes, you can count on me. And so out of that, they develop a sense of trust that someone else is going to help meet their needs. But then they also develop a sense of um, self-worth because they, they, the baby begins to believe that um, I'm important, I matter. And then they also learn, they, they develop their voice, which self is self-efficacy. When I cry, you come. And so I have some effect over my environment. And these are the lessons that, you know, in an optimal caregiving situation, babies will learn within their first year of life. Yeah, nothing is, is more eerie and unsettling than to either witness yourself or see videos of children in cribs with needs who are not crying. And they have learned wow. that crying is ineffective, that they are not important, that they cannot trust. And it is, it is heartbreaking. Yes, they've lost their voice. It is mm -hmm. the most heartbreaking. Oh. Mm -hmm. So what events, we just described one of them, but what events can interrupt the normal development of healthy attachment? Uh, one, as we just described, uh, being raised in an institution where your needs are not met. You're one of many, and, and, and your individual needs are not important. So that's one. But let's talk about some other events that can interrupt normal attachment development. Um, so another one that, that we deal with a lot in the child welfare system is multiple caregivers and multiple placements. And so children who are removed from their biological um, parents and put into a foster or adoptive home, um, that can disrupt attachment. Um, if you have a caregiver who has um, trauma of their own um, that has, that, you know, is still not resolved, that can disrupt um, attachment as well as a caregiver who um, maybe has mental health issues or substance abuse issues. Um, I, it's really just a caregiver who's not meeting needs consistently, um, warmly, and, you know, on a regular basis. You mentioned removal. And I think that some people have the idea that any child who is removed from a, um, from one home and placed, or one caregiver and placed in the, the care of another person, that, that that is a disrupted attachment, but that then it will result automatically in a failure to attach again. So if a child has been in a situation where they have been able to form, they were, may not be ideal, but they had formed attachment. Does that, uh, what does that predict as far as their ability to form attachment to a new, totally different caregiver? Well, so babies will form attachment. So it's, it's not a question of if they will form an, an attachment. Um, I think the question is more, what is the, um, classification of that attachment. So you can have secure attachments or insecure attachments. Um, you can have attachments that are organized or, un or disorganized. Um, so if a child has experience with a caregiver and then is moved and has and then has a different experience with another caregiver, um, their attachment classification can change. There was actually a study done um, 
by Mary Dozier, I believe, at the University of Delaware, where she looked at babies who had um, been removed from their biological parents and been placed with um, in foster care. And I think within about within about 30 to 90 days, they had taken on the attachment classification of their um, foster parent. Oh, interesting. So they reattached, but they were, but they attached and their attachment mimicked that of their foster parent. Am I understanding you? Correct. Interesting. All right. Um, so what we tell people is that if a child has had a, a strong, healthy attachment, uh, that bodes well for their, uh, for their ability to form a healthy, strong attachment to you. Um, is that what you see as well in your research? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. We, um, this is anecdotal. We don't have any research to back this up, but what we have seen through um, our therapeutic camps is oftentimes children who have been adopted um, internationally, who have spent time with their biological parents, and then like a tragedy happens, like uh, disease or famine or nutrition, and then they were placed into um, institutional care and then adopted. Um, they they seem to um, have healthier attachments than children who were, you know, directly placed into orphanage care. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and another yeah, example would be experience. in certain countries, um, a children, uh, well, and, and in the U.S. as well, sometimes uh, children are placed in um, really strong foster families and given one-on-one -on -one attention. And so they come to their new families and that, and that happens here in the U.S. as well. And it happens in certain countries internationally. So children come, even if they're adopted at the age of one or two, they have been in an environment where they uh, have formed healthy attachments. Right. Any Anytime you get a healthy attachment, whether it's in a foster home or with a biological parent or with a um, surrogate caregiver, you're, I think about it like a garden, you're planting seeds for, for future healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. That's why yeah. I always think about, you know, they, they say that it takes one person to change a life and that might be a mentor or, you know, an advocate or a teacher or a counselor or someone. And, and I think that's what you're doing is you're modeling healthy relationships. And so it can never be, um, it's always going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, it will always be helpful. And uh, it's, I love the expression, it only takes one and it is so true. And I think that's what motivates a lot of us is to, we hope that we are, can, please, may we be the one. Yeah, can we be the one? Yeah. Can we step up and be the one for that child and, and, and really help them? If you are adopting or are fostering, boy, do I have a fantastic resource for you. Five free creating a family post-adoption or post-fostering courses. The topics are spot on to the realities of parenting, and you can't beat the price. Free! Foster parents can use these courses for their in-service continuing education. Of course, check with your agency first. These courses are brought to you by the generous support of the Jockey Being Family Foundation. You can find them at, this I'll give you the link, bit.ly slash jbf support, B-I-T dot L-Y slash all cap J B F then support with the S capitalized S capital S U P P O R T. All right, so we are often uh, in the position of having a child 
placed in our home, either for adoption or for fostering. And and we, what are some signs? As parents, we know the importance of attachments. So what are some signs that we might look for to note that this child may have attachment issues? I think a, one really important one is miscuing. And so when a child has a secure and a healthy attachment, they are going to turn to safe adults to get their needs met. Um, so if you see a child who's having um, issues with attachment, they may try to, um, one of two things, they might either try to step everything and kind of internalize it and deal with it on their own, not reach out for help, not let you put a bandaid on them when they get hurt, not come to you when they're sick, um, try to take care of of their feelings and emotions and distress on their own. So that would be our internalizer. Or the other way is that they would be externalizer where um, they could be really emotionally reactive. Um, they're, it's kind of like they overreact to situations. Um, they might try to keep you, um, keep your attention all the time um, and be whiny, um, I mean, of course, all children are whining at some point, but, <laughs> um, but you yep. know, it's, it's when we see patterns or trends of, okay, they're in distress, they need help, what do they do? That's really what we're looking at. Do they accept care from others? Um, can they give care to others? Do they know who they are? Um, do they have any, um, are they able to kind of identify their needs and then use their voice to get their needs met. Those are the things we're really looking for. What about things, we hear a lot about the importance of making eye contact and things such as that. How important do you think that is as a sign, not importance by an, in and of itself, but as a sign for a child that may be struggling with more significant attachment issues? Yeah, you may see things like um, the inability to make eye contact, um, the um, kind of turning away or not liking touch. Uh -huh. So, you know, they wipe their kisses off. They um, pull away from hugs. Uh -huh. um, Become rigid also. Be yeah. Yes. And, and becoming rigid when, when, uh, when you're trying to give them comfort or affection. Right. They don't know how to accept it. Um, you'll also see oftentimes just, kind of a hypervigilance where they're kind of always on alert. I mean, you can see it because they startle easy um, and they may just be dysregulated easily. Mm -hmm. And have a hard time getting back into regulation once dysregulated. Yes, their coping mm -hmm. skills. That's one of the things, you know, that first year of life is so important when we're talking about building relationships and for regulation is because when your need is met and your body is just, you know, distressed and dysregulated and you're crying and then a caregiver comes to comfort you, your nervous system is learning how to regulate itself. Your brain is learning how to regulate itself. It's like, I'm distressed. Now I'm comforted. I'm distressed. Now I'm comforted. And we were talking about that happening thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And so that's, that's kind of the how attachment sets the stage for regulation. And so when you, when you, when you don't have a healthy attachment, then oftentimes regulation becomes um, a real issue. 
so I think in terms of attachment is falling along a spectrum from, I mean, we, mm -hmm. you either, it's not a black or white, whether you either are attached or you are not attached. Um, it's more of a spectrum issue. So from mild to, to severe, the issues could be either from mild to severe. So could you describe some of the typical behaviors that might appear along the spectrum? And if you want, go ahead and begin with healthy, strong attachment and then walk us along the, the spectrum to help us understand some of the distinctions between how attachment issues can progress. Yeah, so sometimes I think of attachment on a continuum, um, and because I have my researcher hat on, I think of it kind of in terms of classification. So I think of secure attachment kind of in the middle, and then if you go out to the left, I think of, um, you know, um, anxious, avoidant attachment and if you go out to the right I kind of think of anxious ambivalent attachment um, and so when I think about secure attachment the behaviors that you'll see are um, they're comfortable accepting affection they're comfortable asking for help they tend to get along with their peers they have good social competence um, they have a voice they can recognize their needs I mean simple things like knowing when they're thirsty or hungry or cold or lonely, you know, those become more advanced, but you want to start with the simple things. Um, and then so understanding their needs and then understanding how to get their needs met. And then when you go, when you move to the left to the more anxious avoidant attachment, um, the behaviors that you'll notice would be things like um, taking care of, of stress on their own. So instead of turning to people to get their needs met, like you know, I, I dropped this bus on my toe, you know, help me. It's, it's okay. I'm going to figure it out on my own. So maybe I turn towards um, other things for comfort other than people or my caregivers. So I might turn towards toys or I might turn towards food or um, comforting in another way other than relying on my caregiver. Um, you'll see additional behaviors um, kind of on that part of the continuum would be um, they children might tend to be withdrawn. Um, they might try to be, they might seem really independent and try to take care of everything themselves. Uh, but so if you move to the right, yeah, uh, ambivalent uh, attachment, what, what does that look like? That looks like, um, trying to keep their the caregiver's attention. Um, so maybe seeming clingy or needy, being really behaviorally dysregulated, um, kind of temper tantrums, crying. They might be easily upset. Um, they may have a low tolerance for frustration. Um, they might seek help even when they don't need it. So I used to be an elementary school teacher, and these were the kids that were um, always at my desk asking for help even when they were capable of doing it themselves. Um, they might seem emotionally kind of volatile. Um, you don't know when they're going to um, erupt. Mm -hmm. Or what will set them off. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the important things is that all three of those kind of attachment styles are organized. So they have ways of dealing with distress. Um, what we see with, with children who um, have had, you know, have had a, abuse or neglect or um, in more kind of dire circumstances is their behaviors, they become disorganized in their attachment where they don't have any clear patterns. 
Um, and so this is where you see the extreme behaviors. You see um, their behavior is chaotic. It may seem really unpredictable. They may escalate really quick. Um, they may, in adolescence, um, they may have like, you know, lie to you even when you just saw them. So kind of really bizarre type things. Um, they are highly, highly, highly attuned to nonverbal cues. So looking and they might not understand all of the, not the verbal, nonverbal cues. So they may see your face and think that you look angry when you really look sad. Um, but they pay a lot of attention to, to nonverbal cues. One of their survival strategies. And, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned survival strategy because very often the behaviors we see, even the most annoying ones, are actually survival, uh, survival strategies. They have worked in some way, uh, or this child's perception is that they have worked in some way uh, to protect them. Um, right. These are actually adaptive behaviors. Mm-hmm. They have, they've kept them alive. Exactly. Uh, and, and hence why they're not easily extinguished, because they are important behaviors. Uh, and it helps to understand the why, because that influences how you approach it. Uh, that's, we right. hear, that's one of the things. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. That's one. Go ahead. Say it. I'd want to hear it. I was going to say that was one, that was one of the biggest um, aha, aha moments that we would have when we were doing the Hope Connection Camp, is that if we could get parents and professionals to change their viewpoint from looking at children's behavior um, as survival strategies, as, you know, as opposed to manipulation or control or being willfully disobedient, that exactly. was the, that's the turning point. Mm-hmm. And they have built compassion. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Then you become compassionate to what this child is going through as opposed to just annoyed by their behavior, right. <laughs> which is a reflection of what they're going through. Exactly. We hear right. a lot about reactive attachment disorder. RAD is what it's called. It is, it is, it's all over. When you read anything at all about adoption or fostering, you will quickly come across the word RAD, the the acronym RAD, uh, Reactive Attachment Disorder. Um, what does where does that fit uh, in, in the the uh, of the continuum, the spectrum that you've just described, which is organized in in in, in three different categories and then completely disorganized? What what is reactive attachment disorder, and how common is it? Um, I don't know the exact, um, the way that, how common it is. I can tell reactive attachment disorder. Um, I can tell you that disorganized attachment is, um, in a typical sample is about, you know, anywhere from five to, to 15% of Mm. children. Um, but when you look at a maltreated sample, it's about 80 percent or above. And so when you look at a sample who has experienced abuse or trauma or neglect, um, then disorganized attachment is, you know, typically more than 80 percent of those children are disorganized in their attachment. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think the biggest thing that I've seen is that um, in order to help these children, it takes um, adults who have the self-awareness to kind of have processed their own attachment uh-huh. um, in order to be able to help a child move towards a secure attachment. Mm-hmm. 
And so it takes an adult who is willing to, as you say, be able to also see the whys of the behavior as opposed to just the behavior. That's what you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being, able, being able to understand what does that need. Um, sometimes parents will say, oh, they're doing it for attention. Okay, well then let's figure out, you know, what is that need? How do we meet that need in a more proactive way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have people contacting us with worries after just a few weeks of the child being in their home or their family. And they're, the family and the child are both in the midst of adjusting to a, a total upheaval of everything. And, and they're, they, they are concerned that their child has uh, reactive attachment disorder or uh, will never be able to attach. And their, their concerns are real. But what is a reasonable amount of time to give a child before parents begin to want to uh, diagnose uh, an attachment issue? Dr. Purvis used to recommend uh, one month per year of a child's life. So if a child comes to you at three, then three months of intense intervention, um, not just life as normal, but of intense intervention with that child. Um, And then if you're still seeing, you know, I mean, obviously it's not going to be perfect, but if you're still seeing really troublesome behaviors, then that would be a time to, um, to seek additional help. So, but one of the things that she also recommended was when you bring a child home, you have to start over from that, from that first year that, you know, the Erickson psychosocial stages of building trust. And so we have to be able to, when we first bring a child home is to meet those needs, whether they're 10 or two, you know, it's going to look a lot different to meet the needs of a 10 year old than it is a two year old or two month old. And so it's giving, um, she used to say it was giving yeses. It's investment parenting. We're putting those yeses in the bank. Um, that's why she was the queen of bubble gum at camp because <laughs> she could, she could say, do you want a piece of bubble gum? Yes. I mean, the first second that she would meet a child and she was getting lots of yeses in the bank and that's how we build trust. And so sometimes we would challenge, um, we challenge parents to pick a day and have a day of yeses where, you know, it's not, it's not spending money on things, but it's spending your time on things. You know, yes, I'll go play soccer with you. Yes, we can go on a walk. Yes, we can play this game. Yes, we can, you know, do Barbies for four hours or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but to, to really give those yeses and try to build that trust and meet those needs in a really proactive way. It sounds exactly exactly like her. I'm smiling at the yeah. bubblegum thing. <laughs> that I can absolutely yeah. imagine. Uh, so what are some other things that parents of newly adopted or foster kids could do to help their kids attach? Uh, finding ways to say yes, uh, finding ways to meet their needs, two really good beginnings. What are some other things? Um, I, we talk about engagement, and we, we, you and I mentioned this earlier about healthy touch, eye contact, making sure the tone of your voice is, uh, doesn't sound harsh or, or mean when you're being playful, right? Um, really be paying attention to uh, matching the child. We call it behavioral matching. But if they're, um, you know, if they choose a red ball at the store or, you know, a red cupcake, you choose a red cupcake too. So you're just trying to find ways to explicitly connect with them as far as, you know, finding things that you have in common, but then also implicitly through, um, you know, healthy touch, eye contact, the tone of voice, um, being playful is, cannot be 
emphasized enough. It is so important because when we're playful um, with children, that that disarms their fear and allows them to uh, be in a place where they can learn and 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 feel safe. And when you mean being playful, do you specifically mean in, in, to be playing games, or do you mean, in addition to that, a, a playful attitude of things? Or what do you mean specifically by that? Yeah, I think a playful attitude is is more rather than um, jumping straight to correction. Um, so, for example, if a child rolls their eyes or gives you a sassy, you know, tone of voice or you know, demands something, responding in a playful manner. So, um, you know, saying, "Oh, are you asking or telling?" or "Can you try that again?" or oh my gosh, I don't believe what my ears have heard or, you know, mm -hmm. something like that rather than going, what did you just, you know, starting on a lecture or, you know, going down the path of, of, of structure when nurture might be better. Mm -hmm. Okay. So those are some things, some tips for newly adopted or, or for actually for all children, whether or not they're newly adopted or not, but, uh, not, but right. those are some really good. So, you talked about the fact that that children who have come to us uh, at a later age, uh, or who have experienced abuse or neglect, or have just had their whole life disrupted because they have been removed and, and placed in our home, that that intensive work is often helpful from the beginning. In fact, you were saying that the time period for which one needs to allocate for a child to adjust really starts at the time that we are giving. Uh, we're, we're being intentional uh, on our work with that child. But when we reach the point where we think that a child needs therapy, uh, uh, particularly attach, uh, therapy to help them attach, um, what type of therapy is effective for kids with attachment issues? So I think any type of therapy that is relationship-focused, um, TheraPlay is a good example. Um, TheraPlay is um, different than regular play therapy because it is, led by the therapist, um, and it focuses kind of on, on four dimensions. So there's structure, nurture, engagement, and challenge. And the therapist will uh, lead the activities with the child, with themselves, and the, or with the child and the parent. And they can assess, you know, where, which of those areas are the parent's strengths, which of the areas are um, areas for improvement uh, between the child and the parent, and then they can... Um, prescribe or they they set up the sessions to um, you know to work on those areas for improvement so for example if a, if a parent is really good at nurture and has a problem with um, with engaging with the child um, then they, they might have some games set up where they worked on the engagement strategy Okay, so TheraPlay is one, and I would say that TBRI, therapists that have gone through training, uh, trust-based relational training, TBRI training, are also, um, I think, particularly well-suited. Uh, and actually, just any adoption-competent therapist, uh, I think, can usually be working on these issues. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think that any, you know, of course, TBRI, um, trust-based relational intervention, um, is a great framework for therapists, um, but it's not specifically an intervention. But mm -hmm. so I think any intervention that's really working on relationship skills and regulation skills and creating um, 
creating a safe place for both the parent and the child, I think, is really important. Um, it can help kind of recreate that, that attachment cycle. We talked some about a regressing, and you, you alluded to this at one point just, just a bit ago, the need to um, meet the child and, and perhaps even regress so that you're able to regress the child so that you're able to meet some earlier needs of attachment. Is, uh, how does that work? Uh, how, and, and I mean, it's one thing if you're talking about a, you know, a one-year-old. It's another thing mm -hmm. if you're talking about a 10-year-old. So how does this work? So that's a really good question. Um, I think one of the ways, when you're connecting, you have to figure out how do I connect with this child, whether they're 10 or two or, you know, six months. Um, and so it's figuring out how to find, like, so for, let me just give an example. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble coming up with words. Um, <laughs> Been there, so done that, I understand. <laughs> yes, yeah, so for a 10-year-old, they're probably not gonna get in your lap and let you rock them and read a book to them, right? So other ways that you might connect with them might be throwing the football. Um, it might be taking the dogs for a walk. Um, it may be playing a board game, playing hide and seek, doing an art project together. Um, things that they're interested in. I know with my son, he loves for me, he's 14, but he loves for me to watch him play his video game. Uh -huh. You know, it's, so it's, it's finding things that they're interested in and, 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 and doing that. We have had some, um, you know, some children that we've worked with um, who will, who are six or seven or eight or nine, who do want to be rocked, who do want to be held, who do want to kind of go back and get some of the things that they were missing, um, especially if they have a younger sibling that comes into the family and they see that child start to get that that kind of um, care as a as a baby or a younger child. Um, and so I think it's just being open to kind of seeing where those needs are and figuring out ways to, um, to, to connect in really meaningful ways and really being present, I think is the key. We talk a lot about mindfulness and I think it's the, the the parent being attuned and being able to be really present um, is, is really one of the most important things. Mm -hmm. Let me pause now to remind people that this show, as well as all the many resources that we provide at Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our partners. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing and supporting pre- and post-adoption and pre- and post-fostering all families. One such partner is Spence Chapin. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit organization in the New York City metro area that has been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. They have a robust, and I do mean robust, post-adoption service provider. They, and they provide these services for birth parents, adoptive parents, and adoptees. We also have Hopscotch Adoption. They are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency, placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Guyana, Ghana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and they also specialize in the placement of kids with Down syndrome and other special needs. And they also do kinship adoptions, international kinship adoptions. So please keep these uh, agencies in mind. They believe in education, they believe in support, uh, and they put their money uh, where their mouth is. So one of the things that uh, uh, we, we hear a lot is the confusion between, I think that a lot of people assume that attachment parenting means giving the child whatever they want. Uh, 
and there is a, they, and there's the, I, they don't understand that discipline is also a part of this. And Dr. Purvis and I have talked about this in the past a number of times and that attachment parenting doesn't is, is absolutely, it is possible to discipline while at the same time focusing on attachment. So how do people, uh, how do parents, how do you recommend parents uh, go about having having standards and, and having behavioral expectations at the same time that how is that not competitive with the idea of forming attachment? Yeah, we, we get that question a lot with uh, TBRI. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the most common errors that we see when organizations or agencies start using TBRI is that they, if they've been very um, high on structure, previously that they kind of err going the opposite direction and become really high on nurture and kind of let the structure go away. And then they're like, well, this doesn't work. And, and mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> TBRI doesn't work and all the rules have gone out. And what about consequences and all of these types yes, of things? Yes, so, we hear it all the time. Yes. And so what attached, you know, being, you know, TBRI that we talk about the balance of nurture and structure and both are equally important. Dr. Purvis used to say, if you give a child nurture when they need structure, you inhibit their ability to grow. And if you give a child structure when they need nurture, you inhibit their ability to trust. And that's one of the lines that's always stayed with me because I think it's so important. We have to have, when we talk about parenting styles, we talk about authoritative parenting. And that is what we're going for. We're going for that balance of nurture and structure where we have expectations. We, you know, we demand respect. We, you know, have the, the expectations for respectful behavior. Um, but we also have the, the nurture. Mm -hmm. And, and the, um, it, and I do think it is so important. And I think that it empowers parents because one of the things that they are hesitant about is, you know, opening up the gates and having, you know, children have, have no rules, no boundaries. And so they think that, that they can't do attachment parenting because they are, they can't focus on attachment because, you know, I've got too many kids or, you know, this, this child will just take over. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's not part of it. Um, can you give us one or two techniques for a child, let's say, who is misbehaving, has done something which you have asked them not to do? Okay, let me give you an example. We're walking down the, um, uh, you've got, before you've gone to the grocery store, you've said we're, we're not going to be, uh, we're not going to be getting uh, toys. Uh, but you go near mm -hmm. the, toy, uh, the toy aisle or whatever, the cheap toys that they have, and, and the child starts pitching a fit because they want a toy. Um, so can you give in this, uh, I'm asking you to, to, to do it spontaneously, but can you give us an example yeah. of how one could handle that situation where the child is, you're still expecting behavior, but, but you're, also not, uh, you're also focusing on attachment? Right. Uh, I always it's hard to just give a straight answer because I want to say, okay, so we have, we've been proactive. Have we set the child up for success before we went to the grocery store? No, that's a good say, point. Hey, yeah. Yeah. You thank know, you. have, here are the things that we're going to the store. Um, help me come up with a list. What kind of cereal do you want? What do you want for breakfast this week? What do you want in your lunch? And it, we've got to be proactive in setting up the transition to the store. And then when we're at the store and then we might, 
put the expectation really clear. Okay, when we get to the store, you are responsible for getting these things. We're not buying toys today, right? So we're setting the expectation really mm -hmm. clear. And then when you get to the store and you're at the toys and they're like, I want this truck. And you're like, remember what we talked about? We're not going to get that. Can you go get the, you know, the cinnamon toast crunch that you picked out? Let's go see if we can find that. So, mm -hmm. if, you know, and it, it might work. It may not work. If it doesn't work, then you may have to, um, you know, step up the structure a little bit. And if you can't distract them with something else, you may have to offer choices or say, you know, okay, well, we're not going to get a toy. So would you like to go find the macaroni and cheese or the yogurt next? Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, do you want to ride in the cart or would you like to hold my hand and walk next to me? Mm -hmm. um, we might have to up the structure a little bit by giving some choices. Um, yeah, some of my worst parenting moments have happened in the grocery store. <laughs> uh, yeah, mine too. Oh, mine too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. So stressful absolutely. and everyone's watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone's watching and you're trying to That's be efficient. Right. You want to get, you don't want to abandon because it means you have to come back to the store. So you're right, wanting exactly. to get through and you're, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And you're under, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Yep, so I think being proactive is one of the, the big things about TBRI is really setting kids up for transitions and for success. And, and we, when we talk about the balance of structure and nurture, we also have to keep in mind um, raising and lowering the bar. And what are our expectations at this moment? So have, has the child had, you know, are they hungry? Did they sleep well last night? Have they had a big transition in their life? Um, what's going on with them right now? So what's their like daily history? And then what's their life history? You know, maybe the grocery store is a trigger for them. Maybe a certain food is a trigger for them or a person that they walk by in the store. So we have to raise and lower our expectations based on where they are. Yeah, that's good advice. We need to also talk, we talk, we, we spend a lot of time talking about children and, and their ability to attach to us. I feel like we spend far too little time talking about us and our parent as parents, our ability to attach to our children. And uh, I think it's changing and we are speaking more about the importance of parental attachment. But one of, uh, one of, it's actually one of our, um, it's been, it's one of our blogs that we did many, many, many years ago. And it still is one that we get probably one of the most, it's, hits and comments on and it was a, a parent i think the title is something like i feel like a beast but i don't love my adopted child or something along those lines and it, it's it's very poignant and this this is a parent who is not an evil person but she is really struggling um with feeling feeling love is how she described it but another way of, of, of feeling connected to her child so let's talk some about parental attachment um, I think it's self-obvious, but 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 I'll ask it. Why is it important uh, for parents to also feel the, these feelings towards their and uh, towards the feelings of bonding towards their child? Yeah, it is so 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 important. Um, it, attachment is a reciprocal relationship, and so when we're thinking about um, when when we're talking to parents about attachment one of the things that we ask them to do is to think about what are they bringing to this interaction with their child? Are they bringing a calm presence? 
are they bringing um, awareness of what we just talked about of the child's history of their um, of you know where they currently are are they able to respond flexibly uh, respond in a flexible way are they able to come up with creative solutions or are they blocked by their own history are they blocked by their own trauma are they blocked because they have nothing left to give right self-care mm -hmm. is so important as well mm -hmm. um, making sure that their tank is full um, so that they can give that to their child um, I think we talk about that um, a, a lot about what is the parent bringing to the relationship when, we, when you think about attachment um, about 80% of the time people will have the same attachment that their grandparents had and so attachment is really robust and reliable and it doesn't change you know easily it doesn't change um, unless you have um, I think they're called they're called corrective transformable corrective emotional relationships so if you have someone who comes in who is that who provides that model for um, what healthy relationships look like or going the other way if you have some sort of a trauma or loss or something that happens that um, kind of leads your your attachment in it in the opposite direction that you'd like you know another thing that I, and all those are really very uh, valid reasons or things that will interfere with the parent's ability to attach to their child but you know another one that i see a lot of is unrealistic expectations that parents mm -hmm. come in without a, a, a firm understanding of, of how this child how this child's behavior may be or or the stress that this child may bring into their life and uh, do you see that as well it's the it just seems like one of the things that we could so actively do as 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 people who care about kids and as a profession who's trying to make certain that adoptions and foster relationships are are, are successful is to help parents form realistic expectations before the child even enters their home. Mm -hmm. I think that is really important, the pre-adoption support. Um, what I've heard from many from many people who who are in that field is that they do that, but at the time they're trying to give mm -hmm. parents a realistic expectation of what's going on, but at the time the parent isn't open for that information. Yeah. Um, a lot of times because they don't think they'll need it. <laughs> well, it's almost and you go so, into this optimistically. Yeah. You believe it's right. not going to happen to me. And 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 we often, uh, as educators, will often roll our eyes at that. But the truth is there's nothing wrong with being, to approaching life in general and certainly a, a parenting decision, I mean, the choice to, to take a child on through fostering or adopting with an optimistic attitude. And so it is a challenge to set realistic expectations because – people don't think it's going to happen to them. Right. I think that's where the post-adoption support is so important because exactly. then when the wheels do start to fall off, we can say, okay, this isn't going to be the first time you've heard this, but maybe it's going to be the first time that you're going to, you know, listen and, and take something, take something with you. I always um, give this example to parents that when you're, there's always disorganization before organization. And so <laughs> when you're thinking about like, in, in any system. So when a child's starting to walk, they might have sleep disruptions or food disruptions because when one area of, grow, of development is kind of growing, some of the other ones kind of regress. And I think of it like cleaning out your closet. So when you clean out your closet, you make this huge giant mess first before you reorganize it. And that's how family systems work. So, Yeah. 
That's actually a good way. And you know, one of the um, one of the reasons that we encourage families, all of the courses at creating, all the online courses at creating a family, are we want you to download them. We want you to have them permanently because we strongly encourage people, and we actually know that people do this all the time. That after they take the course because it's a pre-adoption requirement. But they come back to the course <laughs> when they're, okay, my child is, is doing this or my child is hoarding food or whatever. And let me go back and remember, and, and the, uh, the, in the field we call it educable moment. The educable moment is when you're looking at this child and you're wanting to wring their little necks. And, and, and you're thinking, okay, wait, I know, I, I'm not, I'm, there, I know there's a better way to respond. Uh, and that's when people are then reaching out and they're they're ready for information then. So you're exactly right. That's why post-adoption is so important. So what are some things that you would recommend for a parent to do if they are struggling to attach to their child? Um, one is to practice self-care and make sure that they're not so spent that they don't have anything to give. Um, so whether that, you know, taking a few minutes to do something that, that they want to do, um, making sure that they're getting enough sleep, that they're eating, you know, on regular times, that they're managing their stress in healthy ways. Um, I think it's important that they have relationships, um, you know, with a partner or with a friend or family member where they feel safe. Um, I think that's really important. Um, making sense of their past is another way um, to increase or to, you know, build healthy attachments because once they um, are able to kind of know where they're coming from within the relationship, I think then they can, um, they can be more present um, within the relationships. Um, I think parents can, you know, obviously seek help from mental health professionals or from, um, you know, your organization, from other from other places that are resources. I think sometimes just hearing that they're not alone. So joining mm -hmm. a support group, um, that way those types of things can be helpful. Um, I couldn't, I, all of those, and, and feeling not alone is huge. Uh, so joining us in person or an online support group is, is really amazingly helpful. It normalizes what you are going through. Uh, let me ask, I mean, one of the things that we uh, often parents are told is that when they, uh, a child is new in their home, they really need to be the primary person taking care of the child. They need to have not leave the child. They need to be uh, with that child as much as possible in order to create attachment. But some self-care also requires you to have time with a friend or your partner. Uh, it requires perhaps you to, uh, if, if a self-care thing for you is going to yoga, it requires you to be able to, you know, get out two times a week to go to yoga, that type of thing. Can you talk about that balance? I think that parents have, they hear, what they feel like is that they're hearing mixed messages uh, from mm -hmm. professionals as to, and, and that that balance is very hard for them, the self-care and the, and the focusing on spending time with their child. Yeah, that is, it is very tricky. Um, we hear from parents about this all the time. Um, and I think the most important thing is that they're in a healthy place. 
so they can um, help the child kind of build that roadmap for healthy relationships and for healthy regulation. And if they're not in a good place, I always say that, like, I'm a really good parent, um, you know, when I've had, a, a, you know, I've had healthy meals, when I've had enough sleep, when mm -hmm. my stress isn't out of control, when I've been, you know, I've, you know, this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. And when do all of those things align? Like 2% of my life, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, but I'm, but I'm going to try to find, okay, so what is the minimum number of sleep I can get? What do I need to do? Um, and, and if, if we're going to be the healthiest that we can be, we are going to have to find, um, carve out time and space in order to do that. Um, I think, one of the misnomers about attachment is that you have to meet every need every time. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have to be good enough parents. We have to meet their needs on a consistent basis, but that doesn't mean every single need every single time. Right. And other people can meet their needs as well and show them what healthy relationships look like with other safe people. Um, and that's a, that's a transferable skill. And so I think parents need to, um, uh, give themselves a break <laughs> and yeah. really, and really work on, on taking care of themselves because mm -hmm. in the end it helps them to be a, a better caregiver. I, I couldn't agree with you more that we, yes, we do want you to spend time with your child and, and, but you also need to spend time with yourself and with, if you're, and if you're in a, a relationship with your, your spouse or your partner, because that's important too. Uh, and you just can't keep pouring and pouring and pouring all of yourself into others. Uh, that's number one, it's, it's not feasible. It's number two, it's not sustainable. And you're also not setting a good example uh, for your children because that's not, uh, that's not sustainable for them either. So uh, all of those are important. Um, I do think it's important when we're talking about the uh, parental attachment to at least touch on post-adoption depression uh, and acknowledge that it is real and it absolutely can impact, well, impacts every aspect of your life, but it's certainly including your attachment to your child and, and your general enjoyment of life in, in, in general as well. Um, so what uh, what can parents, first of all, how would they know they have uh, what is post-adoption depression? And then what can they do? Um, I think I think it is common because our expectations sometimes don't, um, most of the time, don't agree with um, our reality of what we've been <laughs> expecting. And this could be, you know, oftentimes when people are going through adoption, it could have been, you know, in the process for many years. Yes. And so you've had all of this time to build up these expectations and this life of what it's going to look like. And then when reality comes, it looks way different. And so your expectations and your reality aren't matched. And so I think some of the signs for depression are, um, it can show up in different ways in different people, but it can be um, if you, you know, sadness, irritability, um, it can be withdrawing from people, overeating, undereating, um, kind of not being excited about things that you used to be excited about. Um, my advice on that would be, one, I think a support group could be really helpful because you're not going to be the only, you know, many, many, many families are going through the same, the same feeling. And then I think mental health support through a, a counselor or a therapist would also be um, helpful. Thank you so much, 
Dr. Casey Call for being with us today to talk about attachment, <laughs> attachment 101. We really appreciate your time and your, uh, and your expertise. Let me remind everyone that the information presented in this podcast are the views of the guests do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also keep in mind that this information is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption or foster care professional. Thank you, everyone, and we will see you next week.